Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 4th, 2018. My name is Matt Tamanini, and joining me on the broadcast today are Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Peter, good morning. Good morning. And Michael Portantier is a theater reviewer and SAST is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and many other publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Michael, how are you? Good, good. How are you? Good. As listeners can tell, I am not this show's uh, normal host, James Marino. I am filling in just for today as James and his family finish up a a short, fairly impromptu trip to, uh, to Paris. So don't fret, James will be back next week. Uh, But in the meantime, let's talk about some shows that we have seen over the past week or so. Um, Peter, why don't we start with the broad... I guess it's still technically a Broadway revival of Torch Song, even though it wasn't called Torch Song the original time it was on Broadway. But you saw that uh, recently, and it opened this past week. So why don't you let us know what you thought about that? Yeah, close enough uh, to a Broadway revival, uh, however you slice it. Um, I thought it was quite terrific. I liked it very much last year when Second Stage did it at its uh, off-Broadway venue, uh, the theater with the squishy seats. And uh, here it is uh, at the uh, the Hayes Theater, as they insist on calling it now. And it really is um, a very interesting show from the vantage point of being pre-AIDS, because uh, the show, uh, though it was written uh, in the... AIDS era, just as it was starting, it doesn't deal with AIDS at all. There's a very famous line in the boys in the band about uh, the gay person not dying at the end of the play. And uh, we do have a death in this play, but it's a very different type of death and um, an equally sad death, certainly. But for the most part, this is a funny play. And while watching it, I was thinking that really this was the next generation of boulevard comedies that we used to get on Broadway. In Mm. fact, at one point, uh, um, Arnold Beckoff's lover, Ed, uh, says to him, uh, if we get back together, we'll know what to expect from each other. That is precisely a line from Mary Mary, a 1960 boulevard comedy, a very good one, too, uh, that I don't think we'll ever see revived because it deals with uh, the wonders of smoking. But anyway, um, it, it really has that type of feel to it so much of the time. It just happens to be a gay slant on it. Though, of course, when it gets very serious, it um, speaks to all of us. We have all had the experience where we've been waiting by that telephone, waiting for that phone to ring from Mm. that person we met the other night who said he or she would call. And where is that phone call? And we've all picked up that phone and called a friend and said, I just want to see if my phone was working. All right, now hang up because I've got to keep the line free in the days before call waiting, of course. So uh, so we have all that, which we can all relate to. Um, this show doesn't pull its punches where it comes to uh, a certain facet of gay life, to be certain, and that is when you go to a club that has a back room, and there is a scene, indeed, where Arnold goes into the back room very reluctantly. And that's one of the things that we like about Arnold, um, the fact that he is certainly trying to find love rather than sex. That's what he really wants. Yeah, sex hits the spot. All of us will admit it. But nevertheless, love trumps it. Oh, I hate using that verb. Anyway, <laughs> um, and um, so that's what goes on here. We are looking for a man. We're looking at a man who's looking for love. And we care about him because we're all looking for love somewhere along the line. And uh, if we're lucky enough to find it good, and we're hoping that um, Arnold will be lucky enough to find it. There are no easy answers in this play. And in fact, there's even uh, a problem with because um, he has a bisexual nature and um, because society wants him to marry a woman well that's what he's going to do she's tremendously understanding um, (laughs) about his bisexuality Um, I think some might say um, a little too much uh, so but anyway this is a highly entertaining and very important revival I will say that I'm very surprised that there are still lines in referring to weight uh, because uh, Michael Urey who's terrific, is substantially thinner than um, Harvey Firestein, and um, who originally played the role. So I'm very surprised they didn't take those lines out because some of those don't make sense. But these are minor, minor uh, problems. And for the most part, this is a stunning, stunning piece. And you know, even though, of course, um, Second Stage is um, planning to bring other plays into this space, 
Uh, I would like to see a transfer. Well, God bless second stage. Let him get a third space. That'd be fine with me if we could get Torch Song to run in the theater where it originally ran, by the way, um, at the Helen Hayes at that time. And um, it ran a good long time. It turned out to be, uh, one, if not the longest running play of the 80s, certainly second or third place, I would say. So uh, it would be very nice to see it uh, match that one more time because it certainly deserves it both as a play and as a production. We, I, I'm sure we discussed this uh, when the show ran uh, off-Broadway last season. I, I think that the reason that AIDS is not dealt with in it is that actually these uh, originally three plays that make up what was <laughs> then called Torch Song Trilogy and is now just called Harvey Firestein's Torch Song. Uh, but anyway, those three original plays, uh, I, I think all or most of them were written who were go ahead <laughs> uh well just before before sure. aids uh right. came in. and 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 even the third one was was really right at the beginning of it right. so uh I, i'm sure that's why instead of aids being the tragedy in in tort song we have a, a situation of well uh i wouldn't want to say too much i know but, yeah Bad but um uh anti-gay violence uh, let, let's yeah. leave it at that um so that's that i i have not seen the broadway transfer i i i really really disliked the off-broadway production because i think almost everyone in it is miscast and okay. i i think the direction is extremely poor so i don't know if i'll feel otherwise or if i'll get to see it on broadway but uh, obviously um it, it was a it was a big hit off broadway in terms of really selling out its limited run and so we'll we'll we will see how it does now here in 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 as you said uh back in its original theater which is really kind of neat isn't it yeah yeah um it would be three years before a broadway play would really deal with AIDS, and that was as is um which came out in 1985 and uh but yeah, uh, certainly I should have made clear that um, the first uh, two acts of the play are not in the AIDS era, and uh, and so it's not a, a factor at all. But uh, all things considered, um, we'll have to agree disagree on this one, Michael, because um, I I really uh, enjoyed it amazingly, and um, I I have to say the audience uh, was with it every step of the way. So anyway, um, we'll see what happens. Peter, were there any substantive changes that you noticed from the off-Broadway to the Broadway run, or did it pretty much transfer whole hog with obviously some probably changes to the size of the set? Um, not that I noticed. Of course, a year has passed, and uh, that means I've seen about 350, 375 shows since I last saw it, so it's hard for me to say. What is interesting to talk about here, though, is the fact that the second stage off-Broadway theater has a wider stage hmm. than the Broadway theater of uh, the Hayes. Usually it's the other way around. Uh, so I think the set is um, a little more uh, confined here. It's not a problem. Um, it's probably more realistic that uh, the apartment in which Arnold lives uh, is a smaller one than it seemed to be a second stage. Though, of course, um, he does seem to have two bedrooms. Um, but again, in the 70s um, you know, and the early 80s, uh, New York wasn't as... Um, as as potent real estate wise as it is now. I mean, uh, when I moved here in 77, um, I, $400 a month for a one bedroom, you know, which doesn't happen anymore. So, uh, so I do believe that, uh, that's, um, a, a real irony of this production that the set has gotten smaller. I wonder if the stage is actually narrower or does it maybe perhaps just seem so in terms of perspective because of the I don't larger. mean narrower. I mean wider. Uh, the second stage is wider than. Oh, I, well, well, wider. I'm sorry. You mean from no. from stage left to stage right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, do you think it's possible? It's just perspective. I guess um, anything is possible, but I don't think so. I think it really okay. is a smaller space. Um, so, uh, but uh, we'll let uh, set designers tell us if that's true or false. And um, and that set designer, by the way, who did a a, a really fine job in because. Well, uh, you know, one has to wonder, too. Uh, there's a scene that really takes place uh, in a bed um, where four people are in bed. They're not in the same bed, but uh, that's the way the set has been designed. Um, I, one has to wonder if that was um, 
Harvey's idea, or if indeed uh, it was the original set. This set designer is David Zinn. Um, I don't know if he did the original, but um, but anyway, it uh, it certainly looks like the original. But um, I, I that is a good question. Yeah, um, Bill Stabile was the original set designer uh, way back when. So, and you know, it's really something to look and see here that the original production was produced uh, partly produced by Ken Weissman who's best known for producing Grease. Now, it's really something uh, that he would do two shows that um, would turn out to be big audience favorites, but nevertheless were very, um, <laughs> very much a part in, um, in, their, uh, in what they had to say. So. But also, the, one of the main producers, or the main producer of the original production was John Glines, who uh, only died fairly recently, and he, uh, he really was quite a, a historic person in the in theater history because among other things well first of all just producing that uh, incredible benchmark work but also uh he i believe w is credited as this the first person to thank a same-sex partner on uh on television during the tony awards ceremony so he really um and and and, and he has a lot of other great credits if you look him up uh oh yeah i used to go to the glines uh as um his theater was called so uh sure um no question that he got it started um in in terms of the actual um billing on the original production he's built fourth of the four producers four producers those were the days Anyway, uh, but sure, uh, <laughs> uh, um, it, yeah, credit to uh, John Glines, who really was a pioneer, uh, and not just for that Tony broadcast. He, he did a lot of important gay theater in the 70s and 80s, a lot. Yes, of, yeah. yes and I'm happy to report that his uh, husband, his widower, um, has been uh, archiving, uh, posting tremendous amounts of old photos and programs, et cetera, on Facebook. Uh, so that is something that, that has really been marvelous over the past several months. And I, I just look forward to each, each one of those, the new posts that he puts up. Yeah, I remember uh, going to the Glines and seeing a musical called Gulp. Um, <laughs> uh, which was originally produced as an off-Broadway show called God Bless Coney. And that's why I went because it was an off-Broadway musical. And, um, and in it was Sal Piero, who, uh, whose fame was about to come because he became the ringleader of the Rocky Horror Show and uh, picture show, I should say, uh, and did all those nights at, um, at the theater, um, near Waverly Place uh, on 8th Street. Uh, so, uh, yes, that was my first trip to the Glines, and not the last. John was also a producer of As Is, which uh, Peter just mentioned right. in passing, is one of the first AIDS plays. So, yeah, uh, just, just really, really an amazing history. All right, well, we have... Peter's strong review of Torch Song on Broadway. Michael didn't feel the same when he saw it off Broadway. Michael, I'll be interested to hear what you say if and when you get to see it on Broadway. But the next show I want to talk about got similarly mixed reviews when it opened off Broadway earlier this season, and that is Mother of the Maid starring Glenn Close at the Public Theater. Michael, why don't you tell us what you thought about that one? This is a tremendously odd and frustrating play and production uh, written by Jane Anderson, directed by Matthew Penn at The Public, uh, and tremendously newsworthy for having brought Glenn Close back to the stage in the role of Joan of Arc's mother. Isabel Arc. Uh, Joan is played in this production by Grace Van Patten, and the rest of the cast consists of Dermot Crowley as Jacques Arc, uh, Joan's mother, uh, Pierre Arc, uh, her brother, Andrew Hovelson, who also uh, doubles in the role of a guard, Daniel Pierce as Father Gilbert, Chamberlain and Scribe, uh, Kate Jennings Grant as Lady of the Court, although she was out of the performance that I recently caught and the role was very well played by Kelly Curran, and uh, the final member of the cast is Olivia Gilliatt, G-I-L-L-I-A-T-T, -T, as Monique. Um, this, uh, I'm needless to say, the, the story of Joan of Arc, the historical figure, is incredibly compelling and fascinating, so it uh, would probably be impossible to write a completely uninteresting play about her. Um, 
interestingly enough, we we just saw just recently uh, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan revived on Broadway. So it's um, it's it's kind of interesting and instructive to see Mother of the Maid so soon after that, uh, just a different, completely different take on the story. And this one largely from the perspective of Joan's mother, although the other, uh, although Joan and the other family members uh, have a lot of stage time as well. The uh, <laughs> main issue with this play, I would say, is that uh, the dialogue is written in what I would describe as vernacular modern speech for the most part. Uh, and not only that, but the characters, um, most of the characters do some sort of very modern sounding American regional accent. Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm sure this was intentional uh, on the part of the playwright and the director in terms of uh, making it clear that these were simple people uh, and I and I guess they think that that is the best way to do that. But I have to say, it sounds very, very strange to me, especially uh, in, in in the case of Glenn Close, because she, I swear, sometimes she sounds to me like Ma Jode in The Grapes of Wrath, or or sometimes even like Mammy Yoakum in Little Abner. It's it just sometimes extremely strong regional pronunciations of certain words. Um, uh, for example, whenever she says a word like doing or saying, she says doing or saying. Uh, and then uh, the, the script is peppered with words like uh, shithole and crap. Um, so I... Again, I understand the point, but I, I think that was a very big mistake. Uh, and also, another problem, in my opinion, in terms of the direction, is that um, much of the play seems to be directed as a sitcom, uh, or or at least a, a light comedy. Uh, there are there are scenes, uh, for example, this first scene of Act Two, Joan and her family are at court. And uh, Joan, Joan has been there for a while, but the family have just got there and they are reacting to being, you know, in, in all this splendor. They're reacting like the Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> just looking around and commenting and, you know, like kind of like, golly, look at that sort of thing. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I there again, I understand that one would have not wanted to make the entire play tremendously heavy and dramatic because then it would have nowhere to go. And it, it's a good thing for it to be somewhat lighter in the beginning. But I mean, it is still a story of religious obsession and someone who ultimately was burned at the stake as a heretic. So I, I, I just think that the lighter moments in the comedy were very, very poorly handled in this play by both the playwright and the director. Um, so I, um, I'm not surprised that apparently it has received very mixed reviews. Um, I, a little, well, I'm a little surprised that Glenn Close chose it as uh, a vehicle for her stage return, but. But on the other hand, not so much surprise because the part itself in terms of the way she fits into the story and, and her interactions with her daughter, obviously there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for emoting there. And, and if anything, I would say Glenn Close overplays those moments. Uh, I, I, I really just... Mm -hmm. Did not did not like this production or the performance or the the whole approach to it. Um, there were there were of course moments where it really kicked in and and as it got as it went along, uh, beginning with the scene in Act Two where uh, where Isabel visits her daughter in her prison cell, then it seemed like it it started to improve greatly because the regionalism seemed to decrease and the, and obviously the, the uh, comedy bits went away and then it, it, it suddenly became quite wonderful and gripping. But I just think that um, there's a, there are inherent problems in the script and the direction, although it would be interesting to see the same exact s script uh, directed by someone else who didn't go in for the, uh, the low comedy kind of stuff that's happening here. Um, similar, I had a similar thought with that other very odd 
play that I saw recently, My Parsifal Conductor. So here's another somewhat similar situation, Mother of the Maid at the Public Theater. And Michael, I will say, if another director did take on this show, the chances of Glenn Close being in it are probably slim to none. Uh, Matthew Penn, who's the director of this, was one of the creators and major directors for the TV show Damages, which Glenn Close was the star of for years on FX and won multiple Emmy Awards. So I have a feeling that the connection between her and Penn might be what drew her to this show rather than just the inherent quality of the work itself. So that might answer some of your questions. And I did want to mention, um, you talked about Kate Jennings Grant being out and being replaced at the performance you saw by Kelly Curran. Uh, mm. Curran has actually taken over the role permanently now. It was announced earlier this week. So I oh. don't know if there was an... It, they didn't give a specific reason. Um, I don't know if it was health or schedule related. I don't remember if they said off the top of my head. But uh, Kelly Curran, who you said played the yes. role admirably, uh, has taken over uh, moving forward in, in that part. She did play the role admirably, but I, I, she, I hope Kate Jennings Grant is okay. She's a really wonderful actress. And um, also on, uh, on a related note to what you just mentioned about Matthew Penn, we certainly should mention that Jane Anderson, who wrote Mother of the Maid, also wrote the movie uh, The Wife, for which Glenn Close is <laughs> is receiving uh, tremendous reviews. I have not seen it yet. Um, so that's two uh, probably very, very big reasons why Glenn Close is in this production. Yeah, very good point. All right, well, let's stick um, off-Broadway here. And Peter, you recently got a chance to see the Manhattan Theater Club's production of The Niceties. I believe it's a two-hander, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. And uh, those two hands uh, know what they're doing, I'm telling you. Lisa Baines uh, plays a teacher at a very prestigious college. Um, they say Northeast, but it, it, it does slip as time goes on that we're in Connecticut, actually. And um, Jordan Boatman, a newcomer, who's certainly going to be on my Theatre World Awards ballot, plays Zoe, uh, her student. A lot of people have com uh, compared the play to Oleana, and one can easily see why, because it's a student doing battle with the teacher and the student eventually finding a way to get the upper hand. And uh, what's wonderful about the play, which I always love in plays, is that each character here, both the teacher who's telling the student that she's not doing research in the correct way and she just can't give her opinions on um, a matter, it, it, it's a fine argument, but when the kid comes back with her arguments, they're very good arguments too. So let me be specific. Um, the girl's thesis is that uh, when the Revolutionary War was fought, one of the reasons why the Americans won and the British didn't was the fact that the American had all this slave labor to help it, that um, everybody knew that America didn't have any money. But imagine what would have happened if America had to pay for what the slaves were doing for nothing. I think that's a very good argument. I think um, the kid has something there. But the uh, historian in the teacher says that, um, yeah, but that's just your opinion. We don't have anything to back it up. You've got to find letters from people at the time giving their uh, opinions about all this. And the kid says, no, nah, but there are no letters because a lot of these slaves didn't know how to write. They were subjugated. So it keeps on going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. The, um, the girl does play, uh, you should pardon the expression, a dirty trick um, on, on the teacher, and it really scares the teacher tremendously. And it's some, something we all have to be aware of, frankly, what, what the kid does. Um, it can happen to any one of us any day of the week at any time of the day. So um, I'm being purposely vague. But, but all in all, um, we do have a battle of wills here and a battle of um, the mind. And uh, not unlike um, Oleana, you will find the teacher losing uh, her temper and uh, a lot of us would have lost it long before she did she tries to be conciliatory she tries to be nice but the kid is single-minded it does start off as it does with oleana over a grade because the teacher wants to give a lower grade um feeling that the kid deserves a lower grade then the kid needs to get ahead so that's right out of oleana but uh all things considered the fact that this deals not with the same type of power structure as Oleander, but dealing with uh, matters of race, it's, it's extraordinarily powerful. And wow, uh, as wonderful as Lisa Baines is, and she is, and she is, she always is, that's her policy, um, <laughs> and really a very sincere performance. Um, 
until she has to be somewhat insincere because circumstances are making her be insincere. She um, essentially lies. She essentially apologizes um, because she's really threatened by what's happened. But this Jordan Boatman, who is <clears throat> so single-minded, just graduated, I believe, from the University of North Carolina, first show in New York. Uh, I think we're going to hear from her over and over and over again wonderfully, wonderfully portrayed and uh, a power, very powerful play. And one has to wonder if the playwright, Eleanor Burgess, uh, indeed um, had this experience. Um, I'm not sure as the student or the teacher, but one has to wonder about that. Uh, so certainly worthwhile. Now, this is at stage two at um, Manhattan Theater Club. That's a smaller space. At the bigger space is uh, India Pale Ale, which Michael's going to tell us about in a moment. So, uh, but uh, I can certainly say, if you go into the smallest space, you're going to have quite an, an, an evening. That's great. The, uh, the night series is running through November 18th, so still a couple weeks for folks to be able to check that out, barring a uh, an extension of some sort that might keep it around longer. So, Michael. Peter set you up very nicely here, sticking with yeah. the Manhattan Theater Club in shows at City Center. You got a chance to see India Pale Ale, so why don't you tell us what you thought about that one? Yes, uh, I don't have much to say about it because there, there's not much to it. Uh, this is a play by Jacqueline Backhouse, India Pale Ale, uh, directed by Will Davis at MTC in one of their off-Broadway spaces on 55th Street. And it's about um, a Punjabi community living in Wisconsin. So that's a, um, that's a really kind of interesting little microcosm there. And they are gathered to celebrate um, the wedding of a traditional family's son, uh, just as their strong-willed daughter announces her plans to move away and open a bar. So there's culture clash going on here. And, uh, uh, Stories that we have seen dealt uh, similar stories with other, I'm sure, with, with other ethnic groups in in many previous plays and movies and books, etc. Uh, but it's you know it's interesting to see it from uh, the from the Punjabi perspective. I just uh, this play is um, two hours, including one intermission, but actually I think it's much shorter than that because so much of the time. Uh, on stage is, is taken up with various bits of stage business with, with no actual dialogue. I had um, a similar feeling that I had uh, when I saw straight white men on Broadway, that, that these, uh, both of these plays, they, they seem almost like one acts that have been pumped up to fill a full evening. Um, I, uh, I, I think perhaps because they deal with uh, with with minority communities in one case, uh, well, actually, well, I'm sorry. Uh, straight white men was was a, was a very different situation. So, so where where it was basically about straight white men, but they added the whole framing device of uh, transgender people. So that was the that was the uh, news of the moment thing that was added to that play. But here we have, as I say. Uh, a play about a Punjabi community, which I'm, I'm sure is not uh, a subject that has been covered very often in American drama. So that's, uh, you know, I, I mean, I guess that's why this is here. And, and there are there is some wonderful writing in it and also some wonderful acting. But I did feel like that it was really pumped up um, and would have been better experienced as a one act. Uh, I uh, that said, uh, I'm glad that that I saw it. And Jacqueline Backhouse, I think, is someone that we should we should keep our eye on for the future. Uh, and uh, you know, at least I, now, I suppose Manhattan Theater Club has established a relationship with her, and we'll see uh, what else we might see from her in the future. That's maybe has a little more weight to it. Yeah, this one, like uh, The Niceties, is currently playing through November 18th. So if this is something that interests you and maybe you think you might have a different perspective on it than, than Michael did, feel free to head over to City Center to check that one out. Um, Peter, you had a, a show that you mentioned you wanted to talk about. I think it was just like a one or two day run, wasn't it? What is it? The Panic over at The Cell? I think it's from the Theater Barn, correct? 
Yes, exactly. Um, <clears throat> it was a one night only thing. But the reason I want to bring it up is because we're dealing with a, a tremendously entertaining and smart writer named Stephen Dolgonoff. And what he's done is take a look at uh, the famous War of the Worlds uh, scandal, shall we say, that Orson Welles perpetrated on the American public um, back in 1938. And in fact, uh, this was... Um, the uh, 80th anniversary of this happening. Um, so that's why it was done as a benefit for the theater barn and a very successful one all around. Now, um, I saw this show some years ago in Connecticut and liked it very much then, but I liked it even more now because what um, Stephen Dolgonoff has done is make it uh, a retrospective. We now see Orson Welles. He played the part, by the way, and very well. Um, a retrospective, uh, uh, about 10 years have passed, and he's reminiscing about <clears throat> um, it having happened uh, sometime earlier. And he said, um, it's a radio show again. But what he's doing, he said, this time we're going to do it as a musical. Now, this may sound far-fetched, but don't forget that in the interim, uh, he Orson Welles was involved with the musical. And, um, and uh, so... Mm -hmm. uh, so you know it, it, it may seem to be a stretch but uh, nevertheless um, he, he was uh, involved with uh, Around the World the Cole Porter musical back in 1946 so so, uh, so that's what it is it really is a musical it's a musical radio show and, uh, and you find out all the, the problems that go on with uh, John Houseman his producer uh, wonderfully played by Doug Krieger and the newbie writer Howard Koch uh, wonderful, wonderfully played by Chris Totten um, and uh, the thing was that, uh, wow, um, John Houseman, the producer of the show, did not want to do what Orson Welles wanted to do. He was petrified of scaring the American public by making them think that there really was an invasion from Mars that was happening right then and there. But uh, um, So Orson Welles pretended he was going to do a straight version of War of the Worlds, um, the H.G. Wells classic, not spelled the same way, by the way. And, um, and at the last second, not even last minute, switched the script so they had to go on with the, um, with the, the stunt. And, um, and needless to say, John Houseman was not happy. And uh, a lot of America wasn't either because a lot of America bought it. Um, and in fact, um, somebody even committed suicide over it, you know, so, so it's a tough issue. And um, the music is quite wonderful. The lyrics are really sharp. And, um, and the reason I'm mentioning it, even though it's come and gone, for those of you who run theaters, for those of you who uh, have a slot open, or if you're looking for a daring musical, it doesn't have a lot of people in it, uh, a few other characters, uh, and uh, they were wonderfully played too, and they're very, very fine characterizations, I have to say as well, because you have the type of actress who asks, what's my motivation, that type of thing. So uh, if you're looking for a musical that's um, off the beaten track, and you want to give uh, a show a, a good uh, start, I, I think you should look into Panic. Stephen Dolganoff. I'm sure if you Google, you'll find him and find out how to get to him. So, uh, so make it happen. It's it's quite a good show. I know Stephen Dolganoff a little bit, and uh, and I did unfortunately couldn't make it to Panic, uh, but I did. I thought it was so neat that it coincided with the 80th anniversary of the original radio broadcast. And mm. and he, uh, yeah, he said, yeah, that is really neat, isn't it? <laughs> So, uh, and in fact, um, I saw, uh, I, I, I went to see Don Pippen's show at uh, 54 Below, which we'll talk about in a moment. And that that was on, on the night, October 30th. Uh, and I knew that it was the, the anniversary. And so I, I went home after that. And uh, I have two versions of, two film versions of War of the Worlds on video. The the uh, old one from the 50s, the I guess the original film version with Gene Barry. And then there was the Spielberg one, uh, with Tom Cruise, and I watched a little bit of both of them just to kind of get myself into the mood <laughs> and mm -hmm. celebrate and celebrate the anniversary. Which uh, uh, there was there were there were even some items on the news on TV news that night. They went to um, uh, Jersey. I forget. I can't remember the town at the moment uh, where it was supposedly centered, where the Martians were landing, and they and they they interviewed people there. And there's some guy who has a uh, who every year has some kind of a uh, commemorative celebration, of, you know, of the, yeah. of the event. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's really it was just it must have been an unbelievable night in 1938. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, something that wouldn't 
feel like it's such a terrible thing to happen right now. I, I wouldn't mind, uh, you know, somebody yes, exactly. watching the evening news right now. It makes me kind of wish for something like that. But um, and, may, and maybe overlords like that would do a better job than what we've got currently. Oh, absolutely. We're not going to get into that, though. But, um, no. Michael, you uh, have a couple of shows that you want to recommend. Uh, the first one is one that I actually got to see this week. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about Ordinary Days from the Keen Company. Oh yeah, I uh, I got to it late, so uh, I I but I didn't want to let it go without commenting on it and recommending it because it, it, it you do have still have a chance to see it. This is a revival of a, a revival of a musical about ten years old by uh, Adam Guan, music and lyrics, and it's just it's a very simple story about four New Yorkers who uh, uh, two of them are a couple as the show starts, and the question is whether or not they're going to remain a couple. Uh, and then the other two are, are two people who just randomly meet on the street and form a friendship. And the question is what's going to happen to them, uh, you know, to their relationship. And uh, and then in the very final moments of the show, it turns they all wind up becoming connected in a, in a way that I, I can't say more about. But this is a wonderful production directed by Jonathan Silverstein with Whitney Bashore. Mark Dela Cruz, Sarah Lynn Marion, and Kyle Sherman, uh, music direction by John Bell. And if you don't know the piece, um, it's it's really notable for uh, Adam Guan's songs because he I, I think he has a really tremendous talent for writing songs that sound like ordinary speech. They sound very natural. The uh, the way the the, the lyrics fall on the music and he, he you know he uses rhymes properly uh and i uh i really had not been familiar with his work before i saw this show i, I did not see the original production but i am gonna have to pay more attention to to him in the future because i i really was impressed with the songs and i very much enjoyed this production I, I did. I did as well, Michael. And I did not see the original production a decade or so ago from Roundabout, but it's a cast album that I keep on my phone perpetually and listen to regularly. That original cast had uh, Hunter Foster, Lisa Brescia, uh, mm. Kate Weatherhead, and Jared Gertner. Uh, and it's a fantastic album. And I have to say, I loved the opportunity to get to see this. For the most part, I thought three of the four uh, performers even rose to the level of the originals, if not exceeded, mm. at least vocally, since I didn't see the production. I, I wasn't you know, in love with Mark Dela Cruz compared to Hunter Foster's performance, but that might just be personal preference. But the other three were the equals, if not exceeded what I was expecting from the roles, just from having listened to this cast album for years. And, and I will say I am an admitted Whitney Basher fan, and she was a we interviewed her on an episode uh, here in Broadway Radio a few weeks ago about this show, and I'm a huge fan. I still don't understand why she's not a much bigger star, but I'm hoping that as she had a baby last year, and, and hopefully now that she's back on the scene, people will see this and get a chance to cast her in something else, But because I think she's fantastic. But Kyle Sherman and Sarah Lynn Marion, who played the the, the younger friend couple that you mentioned, are, are both fantastic. I'm not familiar with either of them. But I, I have a feeling that we'll see and hear from both of them quite a bit in the years to come. What's yes. really also impressive about this show is you really assume at the beginning of it that you're going to see a review about New Yorkers. You mm -hmm. have no idea that it's going to dovetail, that, uh, <laughs> that each of them is going to have an involvement with each other. They're not just for strangers by the end of the show. And that's really good because you just assume they will be at the beginning. Uh, Whitney Bashort, yeah, I completely agree. She's got some voice and i saw her in uh the national tour of uh of the bridges of madison county uh, just one, one thing that that sticks out in my mind is uh, an example of her being excellent in so yeah um she i i completely agree and want to see a lot more of her yeah if people aren't familiar she made her broadway debut and actually in bridges where she played Stephen Pasquale's character's ex-wife. I think she just has that one very Joni Mitchell-type song uh, in the show. So you might have seen her there. She also did the world premiere of The Beaches musical with Shoshana Bean out in Chicago um, and has done a number of other things over the years. But um, hopefully she'll get a chance to do even more and we'll get a chance to see her on stage quite a bit. Um, Michael, there was another show you wanted to recommend really quickly, Good Grief, over at the Vineyard Theater. 
Yes, again, because I got to it late, but it's so good that I wanted to recommend it. Good Grief by, I hope I pronounce it correctly, Ngozi Anyanwu. So that's N-G-O-Z-I. A-N-Y-A-N-W-U. And this is about a Nigerian-American girl. Um, so again, we have a, you know, a focus on a, on a, 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 a you know, very specific microcosm here. And she is she's, she's living in America, and she is a very young girl, and she's coming of age. And then she, well, she's falling in love, but something happens. Uh, and that is <laughs> doesn't it title- always. Yeah, uh, but something bad happens, Better. and uh, and this uh, and that's where the title comes in, which I but th- really wonderful title by the way, Good Grief. Uh, I think that's a beautiful title. Um, uh, directed by Awoye Timpo, and superb cast. I I you know I am not going to uh, try to pronounce all of the names, but 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 uh, uh, but. Ngozi Anyanwu appears in the cast as Nketchi. And so then we also have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six other people in this really wonderful production at the Vineyard. Uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly and I was very moved by it. And so I do recommend it. One of those names, Michael, that you probably don't want to uh, pronounce <laughs> is someone that my Venn diagram I know quite well. His name is Namdi Asamwa. He is a former all-pro football player uh, making his off-Broadway debut in this show. And his wife mm-hmm. is Carrie uh-huh. Washington, uh, who is the lead uh, in American Son on Broadway right now. So a nice little he, – and he joined the – production of American Son as a producer along with Shonda Rhimes, who Kerry Washington has a professional relationship with. So he's somebody who seems to be diving into a theater career post-football quite a bit. Great. So um, real quick, Peter, I want to have you end on something. But before we get to that, uh, Michael, you mentioned the Don Pippen concert at Feinstein's 54 Below. So just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that before we move on to a, a nice little special thing that Peter wants to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Don Pippen is a legendary Broadway conductor and musical director, and I was very lucky to see his show at Feinstein's 54 Below on Tuesday, October 30th, as I mentioned. And his vocal guests were uh, not too shabby, Debbie Gravitt, Ron Raines, and not one but two members of the original cast of A Chorus Line, which Don uh, conducted and musical directed. And those two cast members were Priscilla Lopez recreating her magnificent performance of the song Nothing and Donna McKechnie, um, who did not uh, (laughs) uh, recreate her performance of the music and the mirror, but instead sang uh, a a very, very moving section of the song at the ballet, which, as she told us uh, in introducing the song, that uh, that story in at the ballet was based on her own experience, as as I'm sure most of our listeners know, uh, a chorus line was developed with uh, in workshops with uh, uh, when Michael Bennett got a whole bunch of dancers together to talk about their lives and 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 share their experiences growing up and and their career experiences, and then a script was fashioned around that, and so there are a lot of true stories in a chorus line. Uh, Donna, of course, played the role of Cassie, which is also uh, based on her her own life and career to to a large extent. But uh, yes, I'm not sure that I knew previously. Although <laughs> there are to what two or three books on a chorus line, <laughs> so it it must be in one of those somewhere. Uh, that part of the at the ballet story was uh, based on Donna McKechnie's life. So she she. She repeated uh, that and and then sang that section of the song, and it was amazing. Don Pippen is in his early 90s, uh, but he's a phenomenon. He he played piano for the entire for the, for the entire evening, and it was a really amazing uh, evening at Feinstein's 54 Below, which of course does so many so many wonderful kinds of shows. Uh, but I think maybe the best of all are the ones that bring uh, uh, people who were involved in original productions back decades later to reminisce and to perform for us. So th- this was one of the absolute 
finest examples of that that I've ever seen. That's, that sounds thrilling to be able to see Donna McKechnie and Priscilla Lopez do those uh, songs in person. That would be tremendous. So I'm glad you got a chance. Uh, oh, and just very, that. very quickly, uh, because th this uh, uh, is along the same lines, tomorrow night uh, at the Paley Center, uh, Monday evening, there is going to be a program, and I don't think it's probably sold out, uh, a, a program, a centennial salute to Jerome Robbins, uh, Jerome Robbins on television featuring clips of his TV work. And one of the, uh, well, two of the people present for that are going to be Grover Dale uh, from the original cast of West Side Story, among other many fabulous credits, and Sandra Lee, uh, whose original Broadway cast credits include uh, Peter Pan and Hello, Dolly, and many other shows. So that that's something to put on your uh, on your um, on your calendar if you can uh, at all make it Monday, November fifth, six thirty p.m. at the Paley Center. And uh, I'm it's uh, I'm pretty sure it's it's oh no I'm sorry it's uh, it's not free uh, it's twenty dollars for the general public but sounds like it's going to be worth it uh, to me certainly sounds like and I'm going to try to be there absolutely. Well, Peter, uh, the last thing that you wanted to talk about, you had a chance to uh, attend a tribute or memorial for the late two-time Emmy-nominated, two-time Tony-nominated actress Charlotte Lee. So why don't you tell us about what that <laughs> event was all about? Charlotte Ray, actually. And uh, she oh, was um, – yeah, no problem. Uh, so Charlotte Ray uh, was in uh, Little Abner most famously. Uh, didn't wind up doing the movie, though virtually everybody else in the original Broadway production did. And she wasn't a frequent visitor to Broadway, I'll grant you. Um, she was in Pickwick, um, a, a musical that everybody expected would last a long time but didn't. She uh, was also in The Beauty Part, a play that got terrific reviews, but then there was a terrible newspaper strike. And and as a result, it uh, closed far more prematurely than it would have. She hadn't appeared on Broadway uh, since 1973. Um, she would have been on Broadway in 1971, had Pretty Bell come in. She was um, in that show, and I saw her do that in Boston. Um, truth to tell, she's most famous from her TV work, um, and that's uh, most of us caught her, uh, any of the baby booming generation, when she was doing Car 54, Where Are You? And I urge you, if you've not seen her in Car 54, Where Are You? to um, YouTube, I imagine it's there, what isn't, um, to get the episode called 142 Tickets on the Aisle. Mm. Um, this is one where the um, police force decides that they're going to go to a theater party, and they send uh, Tootie and Muldoon, the two cops, to um, to buy 142 tickets for Saturday night. And they go to How to Succeed, and they're turned down. They go to Funny Thing Happened, and they're turned down. And, and you see the marquees, by the way, of many Broadway shows of the year, so it's fun for that. But but here she was as Sylvia Schnauzer, who did battle with Lucille uh, Tootie, uh, because Lucille indeed wanted uh, the show to be a clean one. She thought that Broadway was very dirty. Well, Sylvia Schnauzer said, bring it on. You know, hit us right between the eyes. So she's hilarious in this episode. But she's far more famous for playing Edna Garrett, first on... Um, um, the TV series, excuse me, um, Different Strokes, which then led to The Facts of Life. So between 1978 and 1986, you could see her on those uh, series, um, more than 200 of them, in fact. And this came up at the memorial. It was an invitation-only uh, memorial. And um, in fact, a lot of people said to me, oh, I wish I'd known I would have gone. It wasn't that type of thing. They wanted to keep it small. Uh, Joel Gray was there which is really nice to see because they were in the Littlest Review, an off-Broadway review, in 1956. So for them to still be in touch and for him to come to this memorial really says something about his feelings with Charlotte Ray. And um, so, um, so it was a very small gathering, and we all um, got up and told our stories. And I told the story uh, that isn't a significant one, I'll grant you, but I do think it says something about Charlotte Ray. And um, I will tell you that whenever I'm invited to a party, I always try to be the first one there. Why? Because then you start the groups, right? If you go an hour into the party, people are in circles going, ah, ha, 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 laughing and having a wonderful time, and it's hard to break in. So go early to a party, because then people will talk to you. I was first to arrive at a party. Charlotte Ray was second. We were talking. Suddenly, John Amos came in. John, Charlotte, oh, 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 they hug. And I thought, well, that's it for me. Um, time for me to go get a drink at the bar because these two are going to run to reminisce. And Charlotte said, um, 
John, do you know Peter Felicia? And the three of us started talking. Suddenly, Judith Ivey came in. Judy, John, Charlotte. Well, this is it for me. You know, um, Judy, do you know Peter Felicia? I am telling you, she always kept me in the loop. No matter how many people arrived, George Hearn arrived. I'm telling you, she always kept me in the loop. And I will always be grateful for that because, believe me, I have been with celebrities who, as soon as somebody bigger and better comes in, um, I'm toast. So it wasn't the case with Charlotte Ray. And there were so many wonderful stories, including the one where Jimmy Kimmel offered her uh, a substantial amount of money to come on and be crude about the girls that she dealt with in Facts of Life, um, saying terrible things about them. And she said, no, not, not for any amount of money, because people write me uh, who are now grown women saying, you have no idea how much you influenced me when you were on the Facts of Life, and so I cannot let these women down. I will not do it. And uh, so that's pretty good, because a lot of people certainly do anything for money, and, um, and Charlotte Ray would not. So um, a nice tribute, if a small one, but uh, a lovely afternoon. Yeah, many uh, of our listeners may know Charlotte from her brief but fabulous bit in the film version of Hair, where she plays uh, I, yeah. a, a woman uh, who uh, ends up being becoming totally enamored with uh, Treat Williams yeah. in, in the role of Burger when, when the hippies crash a wedding and winds up kind of dancing on the table with him. And she's just really great in that. There is. Yeah, that's a very good point, Michael. Good for you. Well, wonderful. Well, uh, gentlemen, before we wrap up and get to Peter's uh, trivia, I do just want to mention I am I'm in town. I'm in New York, so I'm seeing a ton of shows. I did want to mention I saw Midnight at the Never Get uh, earlier this weekend. I know both of you have seen it and talked about it. I did want to mention that the actor who normally plays Arthur the pianist, Jeremy Cohen, was out when I saw it. So oh my God, the show's writer, Mark Sonnenblick, stepped in to take over a role that he had played in previous incarnations. And I have nothing to compare it to, obviously, as I didn't see Jeremy in the role, but it, it seemed appropriate in some way or another that Mark had stepped back into the role when I saw it. I loved the show and it's, it's closing today as we record. Uh, but I have a feeling based off of the trajectory of this show that we might see it in some form or fashion somewhere else down the line. Cause it definitely seems like something that is uh, on the rise. Um, I also got to over to the Jacobs to see the ferryman. I don't need to add my praise for that show. Everybody else has as well. Uh, but I did catch the second preview of to kill a mockingbird. And even though I paid for my ticket, I don't want to get too far into anything spoiling. Cause it was only the second performance, but if you are okay with seeing an adaptation of this book and not just a simple translation from either the novel or the film on stage. I think that you'll probably really enjoy that, but you have to be willing to go along for the ride because it is not just the book or the, the other classic film uh, put to stage, which you wouldn't expect with from a playwright like Aaron Sorkin. But I also saw uh, James and the giant peach at the Atlantic theater for kids, the, the Pasek and Paul musical version. It's fantastic. I saw the other Josh Cohen down at the West side theater, that uh, off Broadway revival still in previews. I won't get into it much uh, really tremendous. Uh, I also saw rags Parkland sings the songs of the future. And, and Michael earlier, you talked about good grief being a great title for a show rags Parkland mm. sings the songs of the future is one of the best constructed titles I've ever seen in a show. Uh -huh. Having seen it, it's tremendous, and it tells you everything you need to know without really telling you anything you need to know, and it works wow. on many levels. So this is over at Ars Nova, and it got a ridiculously good New York Times review. It was I don't remember who it was from. It wasn't Ben Brantley or Jesse Green, but um, this is a show that has had a long trajectory. It's been working eight years through through different incarnations, but it's really, really great, and I hope there's a cast album. So um, I'll be in town for a couple more weeks seeing a bunch of other things, but uh, I highly recommend all of those if uh, people haven't seen any of them. Great. All right, so Peter, we've got some trivia. Do We, we normally start with the answer from last week. Is that how we do that? I'm not – James didn't leave doing? me a ton of uh, uh, instructions. All so right. why don't you give Here us the, the answer? I'll give you the question first. What famous costume designer was fired from a 50s musical that eventually won a Best Musical Tony without her? 
But then she was hired for the film version and, in fact, got an Oscar nomination out of it. Well, the answer is Irene Sharif, a very esteemed uh, costume designer who was hired by Fuhrer and Martin to do the costumes for the Broadway version of Guys and Dolls. And then they said, no, no, um, they're not good. We're, we're, getting, we're replacing you. <laughs> However, about five years later when the movie was happening, she got the job and she got the Oscar nomination. Now, of course, what we don't know is did she simply resubmit the costumes, uh, designs that she had done originally, or did she quote unquote, and I put this in quotation mark, learn from her mistakes and do it differently? Well, uh, if somebody knows the answer, I'd love to know that. But in terms of knowing this answer, Doug Strassler was the first to get it, followed by Samuel Beyond-Delillo, John Moss, Daniel Schwartzberg, Brigadude, Greg Christensen, and Mike Meany. This week's questions. Three musicals that start with the letter M, My Fair Lady, Man of La Mancha, and Molly all have something in common. What? Hmm. All right. I'll have to ponder that one. Yeah, me too. Yeah, don't <laughs> give the answer away because my, you know, Michael, no. Michael normally gets it before everybody because he hears it a few hours right. before everybody. But uh, yes. so don't spoil it. But if you do have a guess and you want to submit it, you can email trivia at broadwayradio.com. And if you get it right, of course, Peter will uh, give you the credit you so rightly deserve on next week's episode. <laughs> I just wanted to comment that uh, uh, Guys and Dolls had apparently had lots of problems in its gestation, not only in terms of the costumes, but in terms of who was going to write the book. Uh, so it's amazing when you think about it. There's certainly a lesson there because uh, obviously it turned out to be one of the great undying classics of musical theater. Uh, so if, you, if you're working on a show and it's in trouble uh, – you know, just do what you can and work hard and and maybe <laughs> all is not lost because you might come up with guys and dolls. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you never know. It, it could be one of the best shows of all time. So. All right. Well, Peter, Michael, thank you so much for having me on uh, this week and letting me sit in for James. Um, if there's nothing else that either of you guys have to say, I think we can go ahead and sign off then. We'll sign off. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Sensation, every little step he takes. Once, thrilling combination, every move that he makes. One smile, and suddenly nobody else will do. You know, you'll never be lonely with you. Son of a gun, she is one of